Hello and welcome to the Max Moo Theatre and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. Today we talk theatre we've seen recently. Enjoy the show. We always start with introductions. Nicole, who are you? Hi, it's Nicole from Mildly Bitters Musings. And we have a new contributor, Deep. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Happy to be here. I'm Deep Tran, Associate Editor at American Theatre Magazine. Awesome. And I'm Lindsay from Maximu. So today we're going to talk about shows we've seen within the past couple of weeks and what we thought about them. We shall start with Hold On To Me Darling, Nicole. Okay, so this is the new Kenneth Lonergan play at Atlantic Theatre Company, um, starring the very handsome Timothy Oliphant, mm-hmm. making, I think, his off-Broadway debut. I might be making that up. Actually, that might be a lie. <laughs> edit, edit, edit. If yeah, you, it's totally a lie. If, That's uh, totally a lie. <laughs> just so you know, Deep, if you call for an edit, it most certainly will not be edited out. That's the surest way to make sure your comment gets into the podcast it's fine i guess we don't we don't fact check in ours either so it works <laughs> well that was at least an immediate retraction <laughs> we, we try to do our best fact checking and frequently issue apologies corrections it's okay i got my traction yeah. i got my phone next to me in case we need to look up something real okay, quick good. <laughs> <laughs> all right timothy oliphant right so um so it's a story of essentially kind of a famous country western singer who's also a famous movie star do we have the equivalent of that? Is there anyone really? Uh, Beyonce? Right. I mean, in the country, I was thinking oh, like, you know, yes. Keith Urban isn't a famous movie star. Taylor Swift before she became a pop singer. Okay. But I don't think she's a movie I, star. But she's not a movie no. star, though. Yeah. But she ever wanted to act professionally. Yes, this is a work of fiction. Right. Yes. Um, and so he goes home for his mother's funeral. And um, it's kind of supposed to be this kind of celebrity fish out of water, sort of he's, you know, he's living this high life and then returns to the simpler life. And he keeps sort of claiming that he's really like wants to get back to his roots and he really wants to be connected to the to the people again and um, sort of doesn't ever do anything that lives up to that. Um, uh, he sort of keeps vocalizing that wish, but never actually acts on it. Um, and... Yeah. Self-destructive white man. Go. Okay. <laughs> but so I came into this one not knowing much about it and being very skeptical because this is the kind of work that is really common and so whenever I see something like it, it needs to be like incredibly exceptional for me to enjoy it basically and this one was actually really entertaining because he's ridiculous and the things that he says to people and the claims that he makes about his own life are people call him out on on his self-destructive behavior so he doesn't get any forgiveness which is nice in comparison to you know the usual don draper tortured upper middle class white guy narrative so th- that was a nice change of pace, and the humor was really kept it flowing very nicely. That's the thing that surprised me. I had no idea this was going to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Kenneth Lonergan's last two plays, I mean, on- honestly, most of his plays, I think, have great sort of humor to them. Um, I mean, Medieval Play was a disaster, and I think anyone who tells you otherwise is lying to you. <laughs> um, and for me, this was like, I don't know, this was... I saw we saw a preview. I'm sure there's going to be, you know, edits made and work done on it and sort of getting to, you know, sort of a sharper, tighter production. But even so, at two hours and 45 minutes, this felt like really overindulgent to me. And mm. to, you know, and for this guy who is completely just, you know, repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again, as much as you can have a character who doesn't change and you could have an entire play about inertia, like it kind of felt like at some point there was no momentum. Like I was enjoying each of the scenes, like scene to scene were actually sort of pleasant and silly and goofy, but sort of in the aggregate, it was like, come on, nothing, nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. And I'm not even gaining anything from these characters or this time spent with them. I thought that the challenge was it ends on a very somber note. You mean the the second play that he wrote for the final scene? Exactly. <laughs> there was almost no foreshadowing of that. It didn't it wasn't connected through the myriad scenes that preceded it. There was a mention of it early on, but it wasn't the over scene. yeah, it wasn't an overarching theme of the play at all and then all of a sudden it happens and you're like 
and and I will say, like there was a there was a particular line that really touched me. Um, so I. I, I, I found it very affecting, but I was uh, surprised by it because it seemed to come out of nowhere. Well, I thought it was like, a, uh, that was the play I wanted to see. Like that final scene was the play I wanted to see, but that wasn't the play I had just experienced. I feel like if it had been 30 minutes, 45 minutes shorter without so much repetition, it would have been a more solid play and you would get that final scene, which kind of ties, for me, it, it kind of tied everything in if everything was a little bit shorter. Because I think what we were seeing was him repeating behavior because he doesn't know how to live without a parental figure in his life. And then this other parental figure comes in and kind of makes you reevaluate his behavior in light of that loss, which is interesting if I hadn't been sitting there for two hours and 45 minutes watching this man just, you know, completely, you know, throw a brick in the glass house of his life. I mean, I will say he does wear his underwear for most of those two hours and 45 minutes. Well, not most. <laughs> he didn't wear his underwear enough for me to you, to want to sit through that again. Right, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, I think we just have to report on, you know, these important things for our audience. What I actually want to know is the workout regimen because between him <laughs> and that guy in red Speedo, I'm just oh. really, like, just the male body is just having a moment right now and I am feeling it. <laughs> Does anyone have anything else they would like to add on this show? <laughs> or can we move on? Eh. I think we can move on. Yeah. All right. To Familiar at Playwrights Horizons. Yes. Uh, this is the play by Denai Guerrero, who's, whose play Eclipsed is also running on Broadway right now. And it's about a first-generation African family, African-American, well, African immigrant family from Zimbabwe on the eve of the rehearsal dinner of the oldest daughter's wedding. And it's your typical, well, it, it comes out, it begins as your typical family drama about, you know, culture clash and new, older generation versus newer generation. You have the, uh, the younger, youngest sister who is a, a, feng, a feng shui you know, artist or therapist or something like that who just <laughs> went back to Zimbabwe and is really fear, feeling her roots. And then you have the mother who's completely assimilated. You have the oldest sister who's also assimilated. And you have the dad who's somewhere in the middle. And then the oldest sister is marrying a white guy. So there's that aspect to it too. So a lot of things happen and they're all really funny and there's a twist and oh and there's also shirtlessness too shirtless men and women so <laughs> there's some equality there something for everyone <laughs> so i i found it to be a really entertaining well done play if you're into that kind of play which is it's it's a typical family drama, but seen through the lens of an African immigrant family, which is novel. I get really irritated with twist in these kind of dramas because I always feel like they're shoehorned in to create additional, you know, pathos for everyone involved. And I don't, I really think it's necessary most of the time, as in this scenario. But it was a really it led to a really fascinating conversation in the second act. And well, for me, because I'm also an immigrant, it uh, it really it brought some nuance to this, this this conversation of assimilation and our relationship to the place that we come from. Because you have the youngest daughter who's really angry at her parents because they didn't they didn't you know teach them Shona Shona Shona. Yeah. And then you have the aunt who's angry because her sister moved and completely disregarded their heritage. And then you have you, you have a lot of different conversations and viewpoints on that subject, which kind of parallels what what most people's immigrant families are. We don't all all, you know, want to be Americans. So that was interesting. I really liked it. I would recommend that. Nicole? I've been recommending it to people because I just think there's, I mean, I, I, you know, we haven't, I haven't personally seen a lot of pieces about the African di diaspora, a lot of plays about the African diaspora. And I think the conversations about that sort of guilt upon leaving, you're sort of idealizing a country that you, from afar, that you no longer sort of have an association with, um, 
I think that uh, relationship to Africa here was sort of not, I mean, it's not unique in, you know, in terms of sort of immigrant stories, but like those families that are kind of caught in two worlds where you are sort of, you left a country that you had a vision of at a particular time and you have not stayed with that country. You've not evolved with that country as it has changed and you're not quite wholly American either. You're sort of, you know, caught between these sort of language and traditions and all of these other things. And I thought she did a really nice job sort of bringing that out um, in a very sort of August Osage County kind of way where kind of all the characters are kind of really kind of mean to each other <laughs> in the way in which only family can get away with, I think. Um, but that, you know, creates these sort of layers and layers of tension. And I liked that each character kind of got their own moment like I thought like oh it's going to be about the sister who's getting married or oh I thought it was going to be about the little sister who is you know trying to get her family to focus on their heritage or whatever and it was like oh no each character here has sort of this robust backstory and um a history that we hear enough about and the performers were so great that those characters, I don't know, for me really came alive. I think yeah. the challenge I had with that aspect of the play which I really liked and also have recommended to others but I didn't feel like everyone got a satisfactory conclusion. Um, in particular, the younger sister, mm -hmm. I was really left wanting to know what, how the family proposed to address the issues she was struggling with. And I thought we got some closure around the older sister and a little bit around the parents, less so around the aunts and the younger sister. And so that to me was kind of one of the challenges of this play was that there was so much going on, so many storylines that I didn't think each one was necessarily concluded satisfactorily. Um, and then my other difficulty with the play, and again, overall liked it, um, was just the premise of raising all these issues on this woman's wedding day. I just found that dramatic device to stretch the bounds of my ability to suspend my disbelief. <laughs> it's you, weren't, like, you weren't there the day my aunt decided to rebuild her own wedding dress the night before her wedding. <laughs> I feel I, like weddings or, bring out the crazy in yeah, everyone. <laughs> or, or when my uncle walked around trash talking my father at my sister's wedding. Or but, my friend's mom trash talking my friend and her husband during the rehearsal at the church that I could hear. <laughs> Oh my God. I come from a slightly different tradition <laughs> wherein I was told very specifically, do not yell at your father at this wedding. And I was like a little offended that they thought I would. So, you know, we all have our different experiences. But no, I do see what you're saying, Lindsay, about it not being resolved. But I, I well, first of all, I really loved that the final image of the play oh, with so them beautiful. dancing. So beautiful. It was it was it, it, it just it just made the whole two hours worth it for me. Yeah. But and at the same time, though, I like the unresolvedness because for immigrant children, it's like a lifetime evolving relationship that we have with the place that we come from, especially when that place is so full of pain and the association with it, you have with it. Sometimes it's idealized and other times for the old, older gener generation, there is a lot of memory there that is really painful and it's really difficult to revisit. And so I really, so when you're dealing in the past, when people have written about these topics on stage, they've always villainized the not villainized, but the parents aren't given as much nuance as the children. And so I really liked the variety of viewpoints that Denai presented because that's really true to a lot of what I've experienced. Yeah, and I'm not saying I wanted everything yeah. wrapped up in a tiny bow. Oh, no, um, I didn't think that anybody's story concluded that way in this play. I guess I just needed a few more steps of progress on their stories to better understand where they were heading post play is really all but I also I like what you brought up deep just because I think sometimes we have this very American sense of like you know especially ch children to our parents and they're like just tell us the truth just tell us all the secrets just tell us everything like let's just all get this out on the table and not necessarily appreciating the <laughs> complicated difficulty in unwrapping that pain for those adults who haven't been able to um there's a reason why they've held it back yeah and not not to punish the children not to keep secrets mm -hmm. but because the pain is so great and and i thought she really handled that well here yes yes okay anything else on that one all right the next thing we're going to discuss is a new musical at the public theater called southern comfort 
It is books. It has books and lyrics by Dan Collins and music by Julianne Wick Davis. And it is directed by Thomas Caruso. So it's about a transgender man named Robert Eads who lives in a small town in rural Georgia. And he is diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And the doctors in the area refuse to treat him um, because he is transgender. And the musical is about a community that he created in the area um, where he had a large group of friends who uh, some of whom were transgender and others who were not um, but they were a community and um, it the story revolves around a few couples in that community and then Robert gets sick and it it's all um, that's not a spoiler in any way it starts out with that narrative being described and then it goes back in time and shows um the run-up to uh southern comfort which is an actual event that um is a convention of transgender people in the south uh this year it's having their 26th southern comfort convention in fort lauderdale they moved from atlanta apparently um and the the music as promised was in a uh folk and bluegrass inspired and there was a five-piece band on stage i was um you know we discussed this in the preview episode there's been quite a bit of controversy around the fact that non-transgender actors have been cast in transgender roles in this play and it's been very um i think it's been a very difficult time for a lot of people uh running up to the production of this and through the production and the public theater hosted a town hall uh, which is online and that you can read about. I was very nervous heading into it because of all the controversy surrounding it. I will say that that generally I, I thought it was um, I thought it was pleasant. Um, I thought it had a lot of emotional highs and lows, which I was uh, I was happy with. Um, I don't think anybody could sit through this play and not come away with a, a deeper empathetic understanding of what it is like to be a transgender person uh in the time period in which it's um portrayed so what did you think Deep? i also came into it very skeptical because not only do they not have any transgender pe- well not any not only do they have a, prim- a predominantly cisgendered cast it was also an entirely cisgendered creative team directors creators designers the, i think the only transgender people person on there was Polly Carl, who was a dramaturg. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it for me, authenticity is something that I always advocate for. Because if you're going to have the gall to tell so, another community story, like you better do it well. And you better make sure that you have viewpoints in that room who can give you who who can keep you from falling into the traps that this musical seemed to have fallen into. Which was, it was a pleasant, you know, lovely, lovely piece, as you described, Lindsay, about what it's like to be transgender. But then for me, when I was talking to trans artists about about this piece for something I wrote for American Theater, they were really... one artist said, how can you make this really tragic story into a heartwarming musical? And the thing is, the music, that was a question that, you have going in and what I came out of is you really you really can't because it is such an injustice that this thing happened to this person and instead of folk instead of because they barely focus on the fact that Robert Eads the reason that he was dying was because people refused to treat him and it was a side little two dialogue two line snippet in the very beginning of the play and the thing is if we're going to be discussing these people's lives we need to also discuss how our society has failed these people basically instead of just you know making the audience feel that they're not also culpable in what happened then again that's a that's my social social justice instinct kicking in but otherwise a lovely piece um you know i think i i did not attend the public theater forum did you 
attend or see it online? Uh, I was going to attend and then I got sick. So that was a thing that happened. So I, I didn't attend either, but I did watch it online. And it was actually really, really insightful. I thought that a lot of different perspectives got expressed. Who Was um, it a panel of people or so audience the way, discussion? The way it was structured is that there were four individuals uh including parley carl who is the dramaturg on this piece and so they each gave their like introductory remarks and then they just opened it up for comment and then individuals in the audience just got to share their perspective and there were a lot of transgender artists in the audience um who spoke including taylor who's the individual who um initially drafted the letter that um, really caused a spotlight to focus on this issue. And a lot of different perspectives from many different points along a sort of continuum got expressed. And I thought it was actually a really healthy discussion where you could see, um, you know, people express, I don't know, I just, it was so many different perspectives that got perspective got expressed that I thought was a really healthy conversation. Um, and for the most part, the individuals on stage just listened. They didn't respond. Um, at one point, uh, Stephanie Ibarra, who was sort of the moderator who works at the public, um, did pose a question to the panel that they responded to, and then they each got an opportunity to make closing remarks. Um, you know, I guess, I guess my takeaway from all of this is that so much the road to creating theater is so long, especially a new musical. This has been in production for over a decade. And the change that we have had as a culture and our approach to gender and our approach to um, understanding the malleable and varying nature of gender has changed so much in that time that this piece is now just archaic. And like trans visibility is just such an, in a different place than it was in exactly as mm -hmm. is the approach that was taken to creating it and to putting together the creative team and including the cast. Um, and, and now this just wouldn't be acceptable. We, it, if we start a piece today, we are not taking this approach to creating it. Um, I guess the question, the, 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 the way the public has approached this play is to say the creative team is the creative team and you know we can add things to it but we can't change what it is and so the question that they pose and this may be a false question but is nevertheless the way i think they approach it is either we produce it with the t the production team as it is or we don't produce it and which side would you rather be on? And in fact, Polly Carl actually started the whole discussion with um, a, a, a story, essentially, about a different production, a different play with a different cast, entirely different. And she said, you know, with these set of circumstances, do you produce this play or not? He said, I, I, I think I would, I would tend to produce it. And, but I asked my students, and they felt differently. You know, I don't think that this play is going to go down in history as something that gets repeated over and over and over. It's already out of date. But I guess I come down on the side of it having been better to produce it than to have excluded it from the season. That's my ultimate conclusion. I am very happy that the two trans actors who are in there were able to show off their talent because it's really difficult for for those kind of actors to find roles. And so I was very grateful for that showcase. And at the same time, I think the issue was is right, as you pointed out, Lindsay, which is they started this process back when people didn't consider transgender people to be people. <laughs> and yeah. so and so but then since then, we've had all these different films and representations showing what it is like to be transgender and the struggles with hormones and with transitioning and things like that. And so I think this particular story, which shows that is kind of it's something we've already seen before. And what we haven't seen is the story about how we as a society still treat them and discriminate against them. Right. It, re it reminds me of um early plays 
early gay plays for lack of a better term um which were all about gay people being gay Mm-hmm. And now we have gay characters who just happen to be gay. Just happen to be gay. <laughs> and so hopefully, you know, there's a journey that we go on and that this is the beginning of that journey of portraying and having transgender artists producing work um on stages in New York City. This is the beginning, not the conclusion of that journey, let's hope. Yeah. Oh, question for you, Lindsay, because I think I missed this or maybe it wasn't addressed, but do you know if uh, Jackson ever got his phalloplasty? Oh, you did miss it. (laughs) I think that's the whole conclusion of the play, which would be a spoiler. Wait, but because I feel like it got glossed over somehow because it was just such a big plot point and then i i'm left feeling like it was slightly unresolved oh when did you see it last maybe night you did I yes. was there last night what the heck woman <laughs> <laughs> way to coordinate the podcast you guys it's funny it's so funny that you should say this to you because it is always the case that i walk out of shows having missed massive plot changes but like he he didn't get it because he gave his money to buy the Okay, okay. It, it wasn't, house. yeah, it, it, it was kind of murky for me. Oh, that's that great. It, I'm but, so glad for you to say that. I'm so happy for you to say that. Because what the heck? Almost <laughs> always me. I, I, I walked out of Red Speedo. My friend was telling me about it, and I was like, what happened? It's like... You know, in my defense, it was a two-show day, so I was just out of it by that point. But the but the, the lady behind me was a little bit worse because she fell asleep in the first half, uh, in part of the first half, and she asked me, what procedure did he want? What's a phalloplasty? Oh, wow. See, look at that. Educating <laughs> people right and left. Good Lord. Um, okay. Uh, next is I'll Never Love Again at the Bushwick Star. Okay, so I'll Never Love Again was written by Claire Barron um, and directed by Michael Liebenluft. Okay, yep, that was it. And it's based on um, Claire's diaries, her teenage diaries that she kept. And um, they've built this into a little bit of a um, collage piece. So there are these choral numbers um, where it's literally like a chorus singing the school chorus songs um there are songs uh, taken from the diary material there are flashbacks to sort of her as a teen and then there are um sort of adult scenes as well as her as an adult um but the interesting approach to this is that there is no one performer playing claire claire is kind of dispersed between the entire cast and everybody sort of takes her voice at various moments, which kind of makes it a much more kind of universal teenage voice. And they're both male performers, female performers, older performers, younger performers, everybody in this cast, very diverse cast, um, sort of voicing this character. And I think for me, I really, I wasn't totally sold on the chorus structure, um, but I really loved this teenage desire space like this voice of a teenage girl who i never see on stage and it's not a story about a teenage girl who gets pregnant you know but sex is bad oh abortion oh i mean like all of these sort of um stories about girls and sex and consequences and this was actually sort of dialing it back to that sort of pure teenage desire the wants the intense feelings of teenage girls that um you know sort of reach so far beyond their sort of physical bodies that they are just sort of overwhelmed by sort of emotion and I thought they actually kind of handled that voice with real sort of earnestness um like they're not making fun of it they're really just kind of embracing that voice as a a valid voice on stage Oh, and it's really fun to note that the choir of Claire's is made up of men, women of all ethnicities. And so that was really fun. And Mia could take back, including her, because she's awesome. She is awesome. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, to Lindsay's going to talk about this, I'm sure there is an incredibly intense, intimate scene that is actually performed by Claire Barron playing Claire. Um, We can spoil it, right? Yeah. 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 He gets her head. Kind of. And then other stuff. 
Um, but I think, I don't know, I, I will defend that scene and that choice because I think there are those sort of cringeworthy teenage memories that are kind of hard to reconcile and deal with. And I think that is sort of part and parcel of this voice and time and character. Go ahead, Dean. <laughs> I was waiting for you to comment on the sex part. And it, I need but. to take a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, what was interesting, what, what was really another interesting tidbit about the show was it was really stylistically different throughout each portion the beginning portion was like a chorus musical type thing and then you have and then the set opens up into into claire at 26 and it's more realistic your your usual you know hyper realistic naturalistic play about her life as a 26 year old and then there's like a monologue at the end so so it really plays with form in a really interesting way and like I, I the lights went down. The first thing I said to my coworkers was, "You can't pay me to be a teenager again," <laughs> because just sitting there, sitting there, I remembered all of these like like the intensity of being touched by in the arm by a boy when you're 16 because you really like him and oh my god, what did it mean? And like, is my body good enough? And and does he like me? And all of and drawing penises and thinking about sex all the time even though you're not really sure if you want to have sex or not and it was just like all of these really intense emotions that that came up with me and my coworkers afterwards and but for me I wasn't entirely sure how much I liked the naturalistic part of it because I kind I I'm I for me I don't know I don't know what she was trying to say with it. Is it her looking looking at this teenage girl who just came into the room and comparing how she is now with that girl? Is it is it because as an adult everything becomes less intense and it becomes more mundane as opposed to the hyper dramatic first portion i have no idea what do you think ladies i thought it was interesting because i thought she actually was trying to sort of set up this dichotomy where she's like oh well in my day blah blah you know be careful of this be careful of that and the sort of thing that i mean people like me do or it's like when i was a kid and this teenage girl being like i would never let that happen to me like that's not who i am that's not how i've been raised and it's different and the fact that at 26 there is a generational difference already in the way in which sort of um, young women are expressing themselves and seeing the world. I thought that was at least sort of one of the major takeaways. Although I felt like with all the coworkers sort of sharing these like weird traumas, it was again sort of speaking to the universal voice of everybody has this, these dark moments from their teenage years, which when you sort of um, present them as an adult, people, you know, it sort of turns heads and you realize how much you actually were dealing with then. It's funny you should raise that point deep because I had a really strong reaction to this show. Um, and then I immediately texted Nicole and she had not shared that reaction. Like she had a different reaction to it. So then I was totally confused. And when the reviews came out, I read all of them, which I don't usually do before talking about a show on the podcast because I don't want it to influence my own perspective but I have a strong perspective I thought I would be able to withstand the influence but there's a line in the Brantley review he says she trusts you to connect the dots from the disparate scenes and styles of you'll never love again if you go with your intuition instead of your intellect you'll have no trouble doing so and I was like oh I connected no dots I don't know <laughs> yeah, what you're there talking are no about dots. Well, and I'm yeah. just glad someone shared that response <laughs> I feel all alone. <laughs> no, no. It doesn't mean we didn't like the show. We won't recommend it, even though it's all sold out, so you can't get in anyway. But it... I thought it was it good was, messy. Like, I yeah, thought it was messy, just, but I thought it was good messy. And I think there's a spectrum of messy sometimes. And I like that it was like, because of the topic, because of the subject matter, because of the way in which it was done, I was sort of willing to kind of make those leaps in a more sort of generous way than I might be with, I don't know, Kenneth Lonergan and his 400-hour diatribe on celebrity oh no I, I totally forgive claire for what she was doing and i it didn't mean that it doesn't mean that i didn't enjoy it it was it's it's more like the lack of clarity just it didn't really mesh with me especially because i had loved everything up until that point and 
and what you're talking about, Nicole, about the um, the generational divide between her and a teenager. I just felt like from I, I interpreted it as every teenage experience is universal, but it's also different in its own particular way. And for this particular girl, she's focused not on boys, but on sports. And it's not a generational divide that she is that that's what she's focused on. It's just every teenage girl is different. But and it, I was also really confused by how that tied into the monologue that Mia said at the very end about being really at home with her body because it seemed like Claire in that hyper naturalistic scene was kind of really uncomfortable with her body still. And so I, I have no idea. But I had a great time. So maybe <laughs> that's okay. So as already alluded to, there's a first scene where there's a choir and there's different parts of this woman's personality voiced by different members of the choir. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And then in the second scene, there's this sex scene. And um, it is variously described using the word raw in almost yes, every single review word. about this show. <laughs> why, why can't we just say uncomfortable? Because it was really uncomfortable. <laughs> it was so uncomfortable. I Well, it wasn't glorified. It wasn't um, I was so, romanticized. I was so traumatized by that sex scene. It, I could not even absorb another piece of information after witnessing it. I felt like I'd been involved in like a sexual assault. It was so aggressive. And I just, I felt horrible for everyone involved in it. And then afterwards, finding out that the actress is the playwright and the actor is the playwright's high school boyfriend, I was just like a million times more upset about it. And so I couldn't really focus on the rest of the play and it being this sort of disjointed, different forms, different styles coming at you like I just had no idea what was happening from that point forward I watched that sex scene in a crouch like just every muscle tense every synapse in my brain being like oh my god help this woman I don't know I just had such a horrible reaction to that scene that I could not really focus for the remainder of the show does it make you feel better that it was kind of consensual on her end it did not feel consensual to me. And I okay. think that was a big part of it is it didn't feel consensual. Mm. Hmm. It really felt like she was being manipulated into something she did not want to do. Oh, funny. I didn't. Yeah. As most teenage all. girls are really. Perhaps that's yeah. what I was channeling or I don't yeah. know what I was channeling, but it just felt very unsafe and very unpleasant. She did not seem to be enjoying herself at all. Oh, no, I I think the point was she wasn't enjoying herself. And it really spoke to I'm not going to get into my experience, but it it really spoke to just trying to figure out like what you like in sex and what you're comfortable in with sexually. And most teenage girls don't know that because our society doesn't we don't teach to them to feel comfortable with their bodies and their sexuality. So so the product of that is that really uncomfortable scene, which is really true to life for a lot of women and really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. Which I guess is also why I think I didn't read it as um, non-consensual or even aggressive in sort of the way you're talking about, because I guess I sort of thought of it as like he was fumbling as well you know that like he seemed more confident though he's like super way too confident it was kind of scary (laughs) i yeah i thought he was compelling her to do something she did not want to do yeah i didn't read it that way but hmm. definitely an interesting show okay we have one more to discuss what is it oh the wildness yay (laughs) Uh oh Oh, i have such a girl crush on lauren warsham okay so the wildness, how to, t- how to describe the wildness, because it's really fucking weird. Uh, so Lauren Worsham, who got, who's Tony nominated for Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, she's married to Kyle Jarrow, who is a composer. He, he, he did um, the Mar- uh, Mary un- the Scientology, Mary Unauthorized, Unauthorized Scientology Christmas Pageant with Alex Timbers. I'd, I'm not sure if I got that title right. Something along those lines. <laughs> and he wrote the, he's writing the book for the SpongeBob musical. And they have a band together called Sky Pony. It's like a glam rock band. 
And they've created a musical called The Wildness that incorporates their performance as a band. There's a lot of band banter with this kind of ritual slash pageant about these two girls who who live in the who live in a town where the water is poisoned and they find a way out. Well, and who's been told that they should not leave the town because every every the wood wood surrounding the town is evil and filled with dragons, and they realize, oh wait, it's not filled with dragons. Everyone's been lying to us our, our entire lives, and so there's that layer underneath it, and then it's also about loss because this. It, are we allowed to spoil this? Okay, I'm just gonna do it. Uh, <laughs> it's a. It's also about this pageant was created by this guy named Michael who who disappeared or who died. I'm not entirely sure. So there is that loss. But it's not. I asked Kyle and Lauren if it was autobiographical, and they were kind of hedgy about that. So I'm not entirely sure if Michael was based on a real person. Hmm. But so. It, if you saw Futurity, it's kind of like that in structure, but with a better through line. And it's also it was also another like super messy, not everything didn't quite cohere, but I really didn't mind because I was having such a good time because I love that kind of staging for the, when it's done well. Like it was like done in the round 360 audiences on either side, some participation. And then they have two audience members come up and talk about, you know, their own experiences and doubts. And Ben Brantley's review on this really irritated me (laughs) because it was kind of like he was talking down about millennials and how we're all like kind of fumbling towards childhood things in order to deal with the uncertainties of the world. And it's like, oh, isn't it so precious that they feel like that? I'm like... No, it is not precious. It is really, really difficult to be told your entire life that all you have to do is work really hard and you'll get and and you will be successful. And to be told to be told that and then not get that is really, really disappointing. And so I think that that show tapped into this kind of ennui that we're all feeling as millennials right now about like the uncertainty of the world and how it is scarier and stranger than what our parents told us it was and the music is also really good that too unlike selling comfort because the music and that was eh. it depends on the style of music you like i think that's true true bluegrass just makes me want to fall asleep it's not my fave either but okay nicole um I don't know. I I thought I was going to love this. And I mean, I've listened to the album a number of times, which actually in some ways sort of hurt my experience of the show because I thought like the narrative, like the pieces of the narrative, especially on sort of the Michael storyline are supposed to be this kind of like fumbling through this difficult process for the performers as they are sort of coming to terms with this issue of Michael being gone. And you know, sort of like, oh, I will now sing this song that I didn't know I was going to sing. And I'm like, wait, but it's on the album. I've heard it a thousand times. I know you know the song. I was having a hard time buying into the suspended disbelief on the, particularly on the Michael storyline. I I loved the sort of toy box world we were like enveloped in. I loved this kind of adult fairy tale and the, um, and the sort of parable to that. But for some reason, when we broke character and sort of tried to do these sort of confessional moments, it kind of threw me out and I was less, I, I don't know, it just, it, I was like, I know you're acting. <laughs> like it just, yeah, there was something that I, I just yeah. couldn't believe. I just couldn't buy. And, um, and I don't, I don't know why that, um, you know, sometimes I feel like the audience performer contract is a very delicate thread. And for me, that thread got cut with that. Cause I was just like, this is just a fake thing that you're added into this. And I'm kind of skeptical now. And I was really enjoying the sort of fantastical pieces of it. So I was, uh, I mean, I love the music. I think they're, you know, it was a really fun, I've never actually seen them perform. Uh, I've never seen Sky Pony perform. So it was really fun to, to watch them and the, you know, design work and um, sort of fantastical elements are really, really beautiful here. But for some reason, that storyline kind of like kicked me out each time. Well, I've made no secret that I love the show. I've seen it twice. I adore Lauren and Kyle. I think they're fantastic. Um, but the reason I wanted to talk about this show is because 
Lauren is uh, quite pregnant and performing this show on stage as a pregnant woman and not attempting to hide it or ignore that fact. And they wrote it into the fairy tale aspect, too. Yep. And it made me I I knew that that would be the case. Um, I did an interview with her on the podcast and she talked about that. And I thought that sounded great. And then I went and I saw it and I thought, wow, this is actually really revolutionary what you're doing on stage. And it made me consider about all of the women who are performers who I've never seen on stage pregnant and yet have had children and what a significant cost that must be to their career in a way that is different than the way it limits women's careers as lawyers and doctors and all these other ways but like you just almost never see a woman who is pregnant on stage and I was thinking like the only time I can think of that that's happened is Kelly O'Hara and Far and Away and there it was like she was super pregnant and it wasn't part of the story and so it was just really awkward <laughs> they just that her poor costume designer for Far From Heaven had to just keep like, like adjusting the skirts bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> some point you're like, elastic's well, your friend in that case well, and it's also like this story is happening now to an eight-month pregnant woman like oh my god it's like it changes the story and it's being totally unaddressed because it can be addressed. It's not part of the story. So anyway, I just think I just think what Lauren is doing is so interesting. And she is quite scantily clad, increasingly so. And she owns every second on that stage. And I just, I so admire that. Like, I so think that it is so respectable and awesome. And like, girl power up there on stage. And... You know, her owning that, I think, is just amazing. I just, I cannot say enough how really, truly revolutionary I think this whole thing is for her to get up there on stage and do this. And I think there are people sitting in that audience whose minds are a little blown by what they're witnessing. Well, and I think the, and it's not just, I feel like I got the sense of all the bodies were being looked at in a very different way. And maybe because she is putting her body out there in that way too but that like even the sort of references to flashing their underwear and whatever mm-hmm. like it was a very knowing a uh, you know self-aware um presentation of sort of women in performance i think it's a remarkable look at the cast of the show the the, the four leads in the show are women and it's a diverse yes. cast as well it's a yeah. diverse cast and the band is great and we all love the cello player and <laughs> <laughs> and also the way you're seated you, it you're looking at them from below, so you, it was super easy to look up their skirt. And Lauren does take her dress off at one point, so you can see her pregnant belly. And it's, and it was really, it wasn't shocking to me to see a pregnant belly because I've seen pregnant bellies, but it was just, it, it was such such a visually interesting moment, and it was such a fearless moment yes. too. Of, boom, I'm pregnant, and I'm and I'm wearing a you know high high what is it like platform converses that she was wearing. <laughs> And, and like a short skirt and garters and I am owning the shit out of my body right now because it's doing something amazing and I'm like you you do you Lauren you, you're a, she and her vocal range is so freaking fantastic yeah it's because you've seen her do a high soprano on gentleman's guide and then you see her do like this really guttural like lower register rocker voice for for the wildness and she's just so freaking versatile but definitely, I hear, hear what you're saying, Nicole, because I know people who, who had problems with the fact, with, with the band banter and whether or not it was really them and the authenticity of that experience. But it's also one of those shows that you just have to just let it wash over you. Yeah, and don't think too fun. hard. It's a, don't it's think too hard. No, no, yes. it's a very, it, like, it definitely, like, even sort of speaking to, like, women's bodies, the sort of flashy dresses, all of that stuff, like, it has that cabaret vibe that I think this is the kind of work you normally see in cabaret that, you know, is sort of integrated it into this musical cabaret rock band theater setting which is a really unique yeah and if if we're comparing it to futurity by the lisp oh i love futurity i actually did not love futurity (laughs) i was fine well i was fine with futurity it was fine but it was they're both they both of these shows are self-indulgent in different ways but uh, but futurity it did it did a horrible thing which is it kind of bored me so i was not bored in the wildness so that's something (laughs) awesome all right what do we have coming up that we are looking forward to i am seeing 
The Way West by Mona Mansoor at Labyrinth. And The Head of Passes by Terrell Alvin McCraney at The Public. And I'm going to one of those readings from the New Black Fest at Lark. And, oh, I'm going to see You Are Nowhere with a bunch of Maximu gang members on Friday the 18th. And you should definitely join us for that if you're available, everyone. I'm seeing Wolf in the River, the new Adam Rapp play at the Flea. Um, we're going to the reading of Teenage Dick. Don't forget. Make sure oh. that's on your calendar, Lindsay. Yeah, that's not until next week. Well, that's I don't have anything this week, so. Oh. Well, if you're mentioning that, I'm also going to mention that I'm seeing Pretty Hunger, which is the second play in the st- public studio workshop series. Yeah, sorry. I'm not on here weekly, so I'm doing my sort of advance. I'm going to see Demotri at the Park Avenue Armory, which is somehow involves sheep on stage, and that is basically <laughs> why I'm going. Do you know anything more I about it? Because I've been trying to decide if I need to buy a ticket to that or not. I mean, it sounds like a really interesting inter- interdisciplinary piece, and because I've been kind of like... I've really enjoyed or at least been really challenged by a lot of the Park Avenue Armory programming. They I've decided to suck it up and buy the cheapest ticket I could, which was still not cheap. So these yeah. sheep better be worth it. It's expensive. Yeah. And I did not see any discounts anywhere. No, they don't usually have them. Um, you can subscribe to like four shows to get a discount or five shows. But I decided I only wanted to see two shows in the season. So it wasn't worth it. So Yeah. What about you, Deep? Anything? Uh, yes. Well, I haven't set up my um, web reservations for a number of these, but I'm, I'm, I'll be going to Ironbound by Matina Maok at Ralstick and uh, 1776 at New York City Center. And I'm also planning on going to House Rules by A. Ray Pamatmat. Definitely. Really, by Jackie Sibley's Drury at Abrams. I've been looking forward to her, to a, a new play of hers for so long. So I'm... Those, and I'm sure other things will come up. And also, you are now here. Andrew Schneider's Harry Trust. So. <laughs> I really might edit that part out. <laughs> I didn't know you'd made a pledge to never discuss it ever again. I didn't bring it up. Okay. I took it for the so, record. I didn't bring it up. So, Nicole and I were at this show the other night, and afterwards we were talking to Andrew. <laughs> assaulted him and dragged him over to talk to us wow well nicole and i were having a conversation about the shirt situation (laughs) which is actually what we call the belt situation (laughs) and though i don't know why but i was like i'd been drinking i was was on a tear i was high on adrenaline and alcohol (laughs) it was scary and so i drag i drag andrew over and i'm like andrew we have a question (laughs) and i'm like we know you don't wear a shirt in the show. And he looks at me and he goes, this again? <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm like, no, no, no. We're not asking about that. We don't want to know why you don't wear a shirt. We want to know why you do wear a belt. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at M-A-X-A-M-O-O. Deep is at Deep Thought. D-I-E-P-T-H-O-U-G-H-T. Nicole is at Mildly Bitter, M-I-L-D-L-Y-B-I-T-T-E-R. And I'm at Lindsay Behrens, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. We'll see you next week.